Awesome. Let's go to Matthew chapter 22, and let's see how you appreciate the word this morning. You all ready for that? You're going to love me in about 15 minutes, right? You're going to keep loving me? Awesome. It's all about Jesus. Uh, We're going through the book of Matthew, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Today we're going to talk about resurrection, love, and lordship. Jesus brings us right to some of the main points of what the kingdom of God is like, and he's dealing with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And let's remember... We're not better than them. So the Jewish people kind of had two main groups, kind of like how the Americans have Democrats, Republicans. But these two main groups are no better than us. We can relate or no worse than us. They, we can relate to their mistakes. We've made similar mistakes. Let's go to Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. Thank you. Then the Pharisees went out. Oh, excuse me. Let's go to verse 23. This is the Sadducees' turn. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with the question, Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Okay, let's understand this. I have a link if you want to check it out later. But the Pharisees and Sadducees, two different groups of Jews, both of them at this time are trying to trick Jesus. The Pharisees are like the the long-forgotten heroes in a sense because they were in the time of the intertestamental period between the book of Malachi and Matthew, and they were the righteous Jews that rose up against their oppressors, the Greeks at that time, through the Maccabees, and led uh, a a revolt, a revolution, brought freedom to the people, and they upheld the laws of God. They were the heroes. But as those th- the time went on, hundreds of years went by, they began to fall away. The Sadducees began to rise up as they wanted power. So they were more like the aristocratic, rich, kind of minded leaders, and they were only looking out for themselves. The Pharisees were at once the revolutionaries, the law keepers, but they had become hypocritical. And one thing that was unique about the Sadducees is that they denied life after death. So for them, life just ended at death. That's why they were sad, you see. There's a pastor joke. Thank you for appreciating that. Didn't write it, but I'll use it. So that's why they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in life after death. Now they kind of just lived their life. This, it's all about here and now, do the best you can, make money, and then when you die, it's over. They did believe in God. They did believe that they were supposed to do things on the earth, but they thought that once it was over with life, everything was over. So what they're going to do now is they're going to try to trick Jesus with one of their teachings. Their teachings was there's no afterlife. So those who believe in an afterlife have to now explain this scenario that they're going to set up. But before we get into this scenario, let's understand the law that they're trying to find a contradiction with. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. They're going to start by asking a question based on this passage that says, if a brother has his, uh, his other brother die, he is obligated to make sure his sister-in-law has children. Now, we're going to get into the subject of polygamy. Now, this is used as an argument against us in this culture because when we point to one man, one woman in marriage, as was Jesus' definition early in Matthew, people will say, well, what about polygamy? And they're trying to make room for homosexuality by using the, uh, by using the excuse of polygamy. So in other words, if it was never meant to be one man, one woman, 
woman, if there's room for polygamy, then guess who can sneak right in? Homosexuality. They're trying to get around the parameters of one man, one woman. Does everybody get that? They're trying to find a way around that. So they say, what about polygamy then? There is only one place in the law where polygamy is allowed, and these are the specific parameters. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. If you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, rather start at verse 7. However, if a man does not want... Oh, yeah, verse 5. I was correct the first time. In verse 5, it says, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her, brother's, her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So now we got to take another little side trail here. In the culture of the Bible, when they encounter different practices, there's three ways that God deals with it in the law. Number one, he'll rebuke it. Number two, he will redeem it. Or number three, he'll tell them to resist that part of the culture. The rebuke is if anyone does this and it doesn't matter where they're from, they're going to hell. Everybody better stop now. Redeeming takes something that can possibly have a good side to it, changes it around, makes it good in, in the Israelite people by changing the definition of that time. And resisting would be something like the dietary law. You guys can eat pork, but other people can, so resist the temptation of bacon. How many know bacon is tempting? Okay, so let's just go through these really quick. When it comes to sacrificing your children to another God, putting them at the altar, setting them on fire, how many know that's bad? And the Bible rebukes that. No one can do that. Any nation that does that, they go to hell. Homosexuality is under that same parameter of a rebuke. That's why he judged Sodom and Gomorrah as well. That was wrong for all cultures, okay? So sacrificing your children, homosexuality, other kinds of things were strictly forbidden to all people, okay? So that's called a rebuke. The second one is a redeem. Redeeming has to do with taking something that was common at that time and making it better. An example of that would be this. Also on top of this, which I'll, because I'm going to explain this, I'll give you another one, slavery. Slavery during the time of the Bible was very harsh, like the Egyptians were to the Jewish people. But the Jewish people were allowed to have slaves, but they couldn't treat them like the way they were treated. Their slaves were more like indentured servants. They were, re, uh, they were treated and redeemed and lifted up. They were given status. They were able to buy back their freedom. If they were an enemy of war, they could change and, and renounce their God, their religion, become an Israelite accepted into the community. So God redeemed what would be slavery at that time. God redeemed women's rights at that time. Even though it was patriarchal society, women still had rights. And so what we see here is in the tribal system, they wanted to keep their family name strong because they were agricultural and they lived according to their tribes. Those were their cities. Their cities were according to their tribes. So if you were from Judah, you would live in Judah. If you were from Ephraim, you would live in Ephraim. How many understand that? So if this woman's husband died and she had no children, his name, his plot of land, his property would be taken. That's how it was at that time because the women didn't have rights. But the Bible redeems it and says, no, no, no. 
Make sure she can marry within the family or within the tribe. And give you an example, both Mary and Joseph were from the tribe of Judah. They were within that same tribe. They weren't having sex with their sisters in that kind of way, but from the family origin, from the tribe. It would be like you only marrying somebody from Chicago, okay? But if she didn't want to marry, maybe she was older and just wanted to stay single, or she didn't want to find somebody else, go through the dating game, her brother's brother, her brother's brother was obligated to give her a male child so that the patriarchal system could continue. She would be protected, and her dead husband ha- would have his name carry on. Is everybody tracking with me? It's redeemed. It's redeemed. It's not the same as the other cultures. It's being given more rights. This practice is honoring the woman. It's her choice. She doesn't have to. But if she wants to, this is how it has to go. Now go to verse 7. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. See, it's to carry on the brother's name in Israel. That's how they're redeeming this practice. He will not fulfill the duty of the brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of this town shall summon him and talk to him and say, come on, dude, you need to do this. If he persists in saying, I don't want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled, the guy without shoes. I thought when it said take it off, she's she's going to have permission to slap him with it, but she could spit in his face. Okay, now does everybody get this? Did you get it? Did you read it with me? Does it say that a man can get another wife because he finds her hot? Does it say he can pursue other women because one man with one woman is not the way it's supposed to be? No, the only prescription in the law for polygamy has to do with redeeming the rights of a woman and a deceased man's property so that the tribes can continue on and that the people of Israel will have their land taken care of and handed down from generation to generation. So now when you go back through the Bible and you look for any positive example of someone having polygamous relationships and it's not according to this, they are in sin. David was in sin having other wives. Abraham was in sin. He should not have listened to his wife and took Hagar to have other children with. Uh, Jacob sinned. He was receiving a curse back to him because he was a trickster, and Laban tricked him to marry the sister, Leah, instead of Rachel. All of it is sin. Everybody say sin. Now, God was gracious to forgive them of their sin, but he does not approve of it. In the New Testament, when he clarifies what marriage was always meant to be, it was one man, one woman, to death do they part. Now do you see the explanation? I have to stop there and explain it because some people will try to get you to think that the Bible affirms polygamy, therefore it affirms homosexuality. They go that back door. No, it doesn't. The Bible only made an allowance for a widower to have a male child so the tribe could continue in an agricultural, uh, you know, agrarian culture to take care of animals and the, and the family name so that that can continue. 
Let's go back to the passage. Now remember, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Why are they referencing this random scripture? Let's keep following. They say, hey, you believe in the resurrection, right, Jesus? We'll explain this law. The law says that a brother must marry his sister-in-law if his brother died. Verse 25, now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Do you see now what they're trying to do? They're trying to make a contradiction. Notice how logic works. They're being logical. They're thinking through it and going, man, if there's a resurrection, then that means everybody comes back. If everybody comes back, then who gets married to who? How is this going to work? And if it doesn't work out and it's contradicting, therefore there is no resurrection. We were right all along, and we got Jesus to either contradict himself, and we're going to make him look silly, or we'll get Jesus to be on our side and deny the resurrection. Let's see what Jesus says in verse 29. Jesus replied, you are in error. That's a good thing to say to somebody that doesn't know what they're talking about, right? You need to hashtag that and put that under somebody's post today. Don't even argue with them. Just put in hashtag, you are in error. You are in error. Or just, just let them know. Resist going further than that, but just let them know. You are in error. But I love Jesus. He goes further than that. He says, you are in error because you do not know the what? The scriptures or the what? The power of God. See, these are the two things everybody must know. We don't want to just be in this church doing Bible studies. We also want to experience the Bible. But we don't just want to experience the Bible. We want to be grounded in the knowledge of the Bible. And if you look at our service, it's kind of split in half that way. We start off experiencing God in worship and in prayer, letting people get ministered to. Then we come up and speak to you. And then we end back with experiencing God. Now, of course, you can experience God while you're reading the scriptures and have the power of God based on the scripture. They, they intermingle in a sense. But we have to to see these two things that they were lacking. They didn't understand the power of God and they didn't understand the scriptures. They didn't understand that you can live without your body. You don't need a body to live. Your body is just your earth suit. If you were to go to space and put on a space suit and come back to earth and take off your space suit, would you still be living? Yes, because you're not your space suit. Well, what's going to happen when you take off your earth suit? You're still going to be living. You're not your earth suit. So he says, you guys are in error. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Verse 30, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Okay, now you need to remember this to share with your Mormon friends, okay? Mormonism is like an onion. They don't tell you what's at the core. You got to peel it back a little bit. When they come riding their bike to your house, they're going to say, we're a Christian. We believe in God just like you. But they're not going to tell you the end of the story. The end of the story for Mormonism is very simple. As God is a father to this earth, they will be a father to another planet. As God has had many wives and made us as spirit children, and one of those spirit children was Jesus, another was Satan. They're actually spirit brothers. You will have many wives, and if you're a woman, you will be a part of a harem of wives to your husband and populate a planet where you will be worshipped as we have now worshipped our God. So they literally believe in a succession of gods. Is that what the Bible says? No, Mormons, you are in error. Uh, Joseph Smith, you are in error. 
We don't believe that nonsense literally because it told us that. How much more clear could it be? You're not given in marriage, nor do you marry. One of the ways they try to get around this is they go, well, we're not married up there. That's why we go to the temple here and get married. No, it says you're not even given in marriage. You don't get to be married in heaven. You're like the angels. Somebody say, like the angels. Does it say you become an angel? No, so as much as we love Iguala, Grandma, so on and so forth, but we know it's a little silly to have naked baby angels in the bathroom, right? And you're not going to become a naked baby angel one day. Little belly sticking out, you know, flying with your wings, maybe at the fountain spitting out the water. That's not you. You don't become an angel. You're like an angel after you lose this body. How are you like an angel? Now, remember, angels don't even have wings. Those are seraphim and cherubim. Those are a different category of spirit creatures. Angels are like Gabriel, Michael, etc. When we see them come, we don't see them with wings. We do recognize them as male or female. I do think there are some female angels in one part referenced in the Bible, but for the most part, they're referenced as male. But trust me, women, you'll retain your identity as a female. But we recognize them by their features, not by their sexuality. So angels do not have male or female sexuality, but they carry a gender where you could recognize them, okay? Now, beyond that, we don't know much about the angels and how they exist, but we know the father is a, a male by gender, but he doesn't have a physical sexual body, right? We know the Holy Spirit is referred to as a male, but we know he doesn't have a physical sexual body, but we know Jesus does. He didn't always, but now he does. Why? Because he became a man like us, like a man, not like a woman, but like a man, but a human like a woman is a human. And after his resurrection, he retained his body. Now, the reason why Jesus has not gone back to being a spirit creature, just like the Father and the Spirit, is because he, by being in the resurrected body, gives us all resurrection life. In other words, if Jesus did not rise from the dead and occupy a new body and flow his divinity from it, we do not have a source of eternal life, a new body. We would always be disembodied souls, and we were not created to be disembodied souls. If you remember, we were made first of the dust, then breathed into and made a living soul in the body. So for us to get back our bodies because of the curse of death, Jesus took on a body, and as long as he has a body, you get a body. Can I hear an amen from somebody? Come on. As long as Jesus retains a body, we get to have a body, but we know Jesus is not sexual with his body, but he does have a male sexual body. He looked like a little boy as little boys look when Mary had him, and at the resurrection, he still maintains that body. And let's just make another side note here. The Bible is very clear that when Jesus made us male and female, both reflect the image of Jesus. So what are they trying to do here? They're trying to get Jesus to, to talk about what marriage is going to be like in the resurrection. Is there any teaching in the Bible about marriage in the resurrection after life? No, there's no place where it ever said you're going to be married. So they err in the scriptures. Now how do they err in the power of God? Watch what Jesus says. He says, you'll be like angels in heaven at the resurrection. You're not going to be sexual beings. Verse 31, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? And then he quotes a scripture from the Old Testament right back at them. He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You see, 
Does it say when Jesus uh, is talking to Moses there, because that's why I believe he's talking to Moses in Exodus, does he say from the burning bush, I was the God of Abraham, but Abraham doesn't exist anymore because he's dead. No, it says I am present tense the God of Abraham. What does that mean if he's present tense the God of Abraham? Abraham must be what? Alive. But is he alive in a body? No, where is he alive at? He's alive in heaven. So he says, you don't understand the power of God. The power of God is keeping Abraham alive right now. He hasn't gone away. It's not like he's vanished. And he says, guess what? He's also the God of Isaac. Has, I, has Isaac disappeared after he died? No, he's the God of Isaac right now. And he's the God of who else? The God of who? Jacob. Now, we know this is true because of the Mount of Transfiguration. Who showed up and hung out with Jesus that day? Moses and who else? Elijah. Well, where were they? In heaven. Were they alive or dead? So do you see what Jesus is teaching them here? Jesus is clearly teaching them, you don't know the power of God. The power of God is not depending upon your physical body for you to live. You live because God gives your spiritual soul the ability to live. And don't you love how smart Jesus was with the scriptures? He knew the tense of the verb in that sentence to use that as the point of his argument. He's saying, it's not I was the God of Abraham. I am currently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so how does that comfort us? That comfort us that when our body physically dies, we continue living on with our God. Now, he could have said, I'm also the judge of Pharaoh, and he's in another place, you know. I'm still the judge of all these wicked people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and you don't want to go where they're going or where they're at. The idea that he clarified to them is you don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. And look what it says in verse 33. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, without a sign of, you know, raising your hands, you don't have to do that. How many of you just learned from this passage that probably you read and didn't know what in the world was going on? You didn't even know who the Sadducees were. Maybe you didn't understand why they would try to find a contradiction there. But as you see, we have to study the scriptures. And that may be astonishing to you, as it was to them. And whenever we learn something in that way, it is astonishing. But guess what? We know the end of the story. And the end of the story is you're supposed to teach Jesus' teachings to others. So go astonish people. Teach them about the resurrection, that Jesus believed in it, that Jesus taught it, and Jesus experienced it as the first human of all kind to do it, to start a new human race. And we're all going to be resurrected, whether unto life or eternal uh, peace and joy with Jesus or a resurrection of destruction. You'll get back a body to suffer in the lake of fire for eternity. So you'll either die twice or you'll live twice. Does everybody get that illustration as I've talked before? We all get to live once and die once. That's a true fact. But now it's up to you whether or not you die twice or you live twice. If you get born again now and your spirit and your soul is changed, you get to have another body and rule and reign with Christ and be with him and have your second life for eternity. But if you deny Christ, you die in your sins, you'll receive that body again, but then it's going to be a body of eternal destruction forever and forever. How many want life today? Amen. Let's go on to verse 34. Jesus is now going to deal with the Pharisees. So hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. 
Oh, let's see if we can do better. Man, he sure made you guys look dumb. You guys shouldn't have did that. He, man, you had that coming to you. We're smarter than you. So look what it says in verse 35. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. And you can almost see the Pharisees going, man, you're the smart one. Come on, come on. We're going to get you to ask him. Come on, we're going to push you in front. You ask him this question. See, they're trying to trick him. We should never have that heart when we're asking questions. We should have a heart to learn. So now look at this question. They think this one is going to be so tough that Jesus is not going to know what to say. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Well, that sounds like a tough one, right? 613 commands. Which ones do you pick? Thou shalt not murder. That's important. Don't want to kill people. How about obey your parents? Because without parents, we can't be here, right? We need parents. Or, uh, you know, don't lie. Lying is a form of a sin and, and can lead to all kinds of things. What does Jesus do? Jesus replied, and he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. What he did is he went right to the beginning of the law, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and he said, if this is true, then this is the greatest commandment because it's the foundation of all the other commandments. It's called the axiomatic approach. Jesus laid down the first foundation, an axiom, and without a foundation, you can't build on something. The foundation is God exists, and we owe him our love. That's the foundation of all commands. And then I love Jesus, and he's like, and since I'm at it, I'm going to tell you the second greatest command. You didn't, just, you, you didn't ask for the second, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. You stay around a while, I'll give you the third, I'll give you the fourth, I'll give you the fifth. Come on, somebody. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as what? As yourself. And those are those references all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Somebody say it's all about love. You see, Jesus is not sweating. He's not desperate for an answer. He knows the foundation. The foundation is we give God our love. If you don't believe God exists, you can never worship him and love him. But if you believe God exists, the greatest thing you can ever do for him is love him. I mean, let's just think about it. What could you ever give him that he doesn't have? Oh, I'm going to give all these sacrifices to you. That's not the greatest thing you can do for him. He made animals, right? Well, what's the greatest thing you can give to the person who has it all? Right? God's the person who has it all. What you can give him is your heart. Because if you're truly a person, then that means you have a heart. You have a soul. You have a mind. And these are three words all describing the same exact thing, the inner person. The inner person has a heart, like emotions, not just your beating heart, but, you know, speaking about your emotions. You have a soul. That's where your will is at, where you decide to do things. And then in your mind, what you think about. So if you put it all together, you are a free will, feeling, thinking person. Think about it again. You are a heart, a soul, and a mind, and it's all summarized in the word soul or spiritual soul, etc. But if you want to see how Jesus was breaking it down from the Old Testament, you are a feeling, you feel things, you're a heart, you're a soul, a willing to do things, a thinking kind of person. And God says, I want that. See, that's what you give the, the person that has everything. You give them your heart. You give them your soul. You give them your mind. In another version, it adds in strength. You, you give that person all of who you are. How many believe God is deserving of it? Now, Jesus goes on to say in other places, especially in the book of John, if you love me, you'll obey my what? 
command. So that goes hand in hand. If I love my wife, I'll be faithful to my wife. If I love my children, I'll take care of my children. You see how that goes together. And then that's why he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you don't know how to love God, you can't love somebody else. But if you know how to love God, you know how to love somebody else. Because you know how to treat them because of how God has treated you. Has God been kind to you? Be kind to others. Has God forgiven you? Forgive others. Does everybody get how it works? And so that's why the vision of this church is loving God and loving people. And everything else fits into those two commands. What I love about Jesus is Jesus never had a problem talking about love. But he never detached love from commandments. Those are kinds of the things we struggle with in life. Let's say we're walking on the highway of life and we're serving God. Sometimes we can fall into this ditch called legalism. And we just think like to serve God means I have to earn his love. I have to do all the right things. And if you know I don't do that, he won't love me and I'll go to hell and I don't want to go to hell. So I better get working for Jesus because I want to get to heaven. Call that legalism. Somebody say legalism. Thank you. But then on the other side is liberalism. You know what? God loves me. I'm a king's kid. It doesn't matter what I do. God will forgive me. Cheat on my wife, murder my neighbor, steal from you. All I have to do is ask for forgiveness and try my best, and he'll forgive me. He's a good old God like that. See, we just divorce God from his character. Make sloppy agape, greasy grace. So you have on this side legalism and this other side liberalism. But what is the path of holiness? What is the path that pleases God? Where should we be walking every day? On the path of love. Love. See, love for God has you do the right things, but you do it out of the right heart. And love for God has you appreciate his forgiveness, but you don't abuse it to keep getting the forgiveness. Love guards you from the two ditches of liberalism and legalism and protects your heart. And that's the same thing with your neighbor. You could always have the fear of man, the legalistic sense of if I'm not good to my friend, they're going to leave me and you're always walking on eggshells or you're just a doormat letting everybody walk all over you. Or you could look at your relationships with people and say, here's the deal. I'm going to love you like I love myself. And if that's not good enough for you, I release you. I give you the gift of goodbye. But if you'll let me love you as I love myself, as I grow in that love, I will change. And I will become greater. And I'll help you. And you'll help me. And we'll do all of that. But here's the way I'm going to treat you. And I don't always agree with myself, so I'm not always going to agree with you. Right? I'm not afraid of myself, so I'm not going to be afraid of you. Right? So you're going to love people as you love yourself. And there's an important part there a lot of people miss. If you don't love yourself, how can you love someone else as yourself? This is not a selfish, vain kind of love. Like, I love myself. I'm amazing. I think Snoop Dogg received a reward one time. And he said, I just want to thank the greatest person in my life that made this happen. Myself. I thank myself. You know, it would take a dog to say something that dumb, wouldn't it? A Snoop Dogg would say something that dumb. Oh, yeah, so you gave yourself your oxygen. You gave yourself your brain. Let's go through all the things you gave yourself, Mr. Smarty Pants. You didn't give yourself nothing but a bunch of trouble and and an ignorant mind. That's what you did to yourself. 
But, you know, people think that's the way you love yourself. No, no. The Bible talks about this even in the context of marriage in Ephesians where it says, Husbands, love your, your wife as you love yourself because no one ever hated their own body but cared for it. What, what it means is you should have a desire to survive and to thrive and to be healthy and to be at peace with yourself and all of those things, and that's what you should desire for somebody else. And, and even the Bible says prefer others above yourself, but not to your harm and detriment, but in the sense of always thinking of others' needs, not putting your needs first. If we all lived like that, how many know the world would be a better place? If we all just kept those two commands and followed along the, the journey of faith and love and all of that, we would have a great culture. We would have a different kind of government. We would be a different kind of people on our jobs. And that's what Jesus gave them as the answer. How many think that's a great answer? Amen. Switching gears again, being faithful to the text. Let's go to the last part of chapter 22, verse 41. Pharisees don't give up. Sadducees, they're long gone now. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. Uh-oh. It's kind of the tables are turning here, aren't they? See, Jesus has been the one getting all the questions. Now he's like, I want to ask you guys a question. I love this because you have to understand in arguments, don't always be on the defensive. You know, people might say, well, you know, well, who did Cain marry then? If you believe in the Bible, it doesn't say who Cain's wife is. Who did, he, who did it, you know, he marry? And then just be like, hey, let me ask you a question. How do you exist? You know, sometimes you got to stop always being on the, on the defensive. You got to start asking them questions. Well, I don't believe in miracles. Prove to me a miracle. Prove to me you exist. You know, how do you even know you're here right now? Don't let people always keep backing you up into the corner where you got to explain the Bible. You got to go through archaeology. You got to take them through history. Why don't you ask them a few questions like, how do you exist? Where did this come from? Why is there something rather than nothing? Explain that to me, and then I'll explain some other things to you. You know, it's like the old famous guy said when he was arguing with atheists. Yeah, I argue with atheists all the time. And they just ask for one miracle, and then they say they'll explain the rest. And what's that one miracle the atheists always ask you to grant them? Existence, the universe, everything in it, and the laws of nature. Just grant us that, and then we'll tell you Christians how you're wrong. No, we're not granting your first miracle to have an argument with us. Let's try to explain the very first thing, why there's something rather than nothing, why you exist, why there's laws. You don't get a free miracle and then get to argue with me. We're starting right here. We're just going to go right here, stay here for a while. So I love Jesus because he's not dealing with atheists, though, right? He's not dealing with agnostics. He's dealing with people who don't think he's the Messiah. So he's, got, he's like, hey, guys, you guys are pretty smart. You guys are the ones holding it down. You read the Bible. You understand it. Let me ask you a question. When it comes to the Messiah, what do you think? Whose son is he? Whose son is the Messiah? Now, you have to understand, in the Bible, the Messiah is that promised figure that's going to come and make everything right. It's not that they're copying off of Star Wars and Luke Skywalker's Star Wars copied off of them, bro. This is the idea of the chosen one. This is the original chosen one. Here's everybody getting this. Every other myth, every other make-believe story has copied off the Bible because the Bible came first, and then the Bible made predictive prophecy, and those prophecies came true. And so they know the Messiah's got to be coming quickly because the Messiah has to come while the second temple's around. Remember, their temple got destroyed earlier, and they were put into Babylon and Assyria, and they had been gathered back. And I told you a little bit about the Maccabean revolt. And so at this time, they think it's about the end of the world for them. The Messiah's got to come quickly. But here was their problem. They took the two comings of Jesus in the Old Testament and put them as one. 
As they read throughout the scripture, say starting in Genesis chapter 3, the, mess- the messianic prophecies, they didn't see as two comings, but only as one. In Genesis chapter 3, the woman is told that you're going to have pain in childbirth. But one of your children is going to crush the head of the serpent who has deceived you. But while he's crushing the head of the serpent, the serpent's going to strike his heel. There's your first messianic prophecy, and it literally goes to the last book of the Old Testament. And let me just say this. There are more prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah's second coming than there are about his first coming. There is so much emphasis on what he's going to do the second time that they thought the second time was the first time. So they would read scriptures like Isaiah 53, the, the Messiah is going to suffer, and then they put right on top of that Psalm 2, and the Messiah is going to conquer and crush his enemies and bring everybody into the subjection of God. So they didn't understand that first he would come as a suffering servant. Why is he doing that? To die for the sins, to be our sacrifice. Now, somebody might say, well, I could still agree with that, that he would do that, but why didn't he come immediately? This would be like a Jewish thing. He dies, he resurrects, and now his second coming. He defeats Rome, he defeats the world, let's go for it. Hold on, Mr. Jewish friend. The reason why there's been 2,000 years of the last days is so us Romans and Aztecs and Europeans and Africans and Asians could come in the kingdom right? Mr. Goldberg can't be there all by himself. We need all nations. That's why at the end of Matthew, it says, go into all the world, preach to all the nations. So what happens between the resurrection, the, the, the end of his first coming, he does all that stuff in the first coming. What happens between the resurrection and the second coming of Jesus? The church, you, nations being saved so that there can be a multiplicity in the kingdom of God. If Jesus, after the resurrection, would have struck the world down, there would have been about 2 million Jews in the kingdom of God, and you and I would have woke up in hell. You would have started existing in hell. Have you ever thought about why you started existing in a body on earth and not in hell and torment? The reason is, is because when God created Adam and Eve, he knew the entirety of the human race. And so he has to let everyone come out and make their decision for for their salvation or for their damnation. And so you and I are a part of that. And it's our turn now to have our generation make its choice. How many are going to choose Jesus? Amen. But they didn't understand that about the Messiah. They thought the Messiah would just come once, conquer the world, and then rule and reign forever and ever. That's what the Pharisees believed, and that would be the resurrection. The problem with that is they skipped over this thing called redemption. They skipped over this thing called the sacrificial lamb, the whole entire reason why they had sacrifice. They skipped over the whole whole promise to Abraham that not only would the Jewish people be blessed, but all nations from his descendant, his seed, would be blessed. How many are glad there's been 2,000 years of human history since the resurrection? Okay, so now he's going to ask them a question, though, about this Messiah figure, who for the most part they thought was just another human like them, but would be a conquering king somewhat like David. So listen to what it says here. Whose son is the Messiah? They go, he's the son of David. That doesn't mean he's going to be the direct son of David. It means he's going to come through the lineage of David. That's why the Bible is very clear to show us Mary and Joseph's lineage is from David. Now, we know Joseph did not have anything to do with the seed, the sperm that came into Mary. That came from the Holy Spirit. But he raised Jesus. And the Bible wants us to be clear. He was raised as a son, a descendant of David. And Mary, who he shared 
shared in the womb with the body he got from the Holy Spirit. Because remember, Mary did not give him the body. If she would have, he would have been born a sinner because Mary was a sinner. Catholics then try to say, well, Mary wasn't born a sinner so she could give a sinless body to Jesus. Well, what about Mary's mother? Was she a sinner? Well, then what about Mary's mother's mother, grandmother? You're right. No, 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 no. Here's us. Let's make it real simple. Jesus is the only one born sinless, and it's because of the Holy Spirit. But Mary's descendant is also from David. So they, uh, he asked the question, whose son is he? Whose lineage is he from? They go, he's the son of David. And I have the scriptures there. Verse 43, he says to them now, how is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Some of you don't even understand the question. You're still trying to figure out what Jesus is talking about. What did you say, Jesus? Say that again, Jesus. Go slow for me. Whose son is he? He's the son of David. But how did David say, my Lord, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand? Sounds like there's two lords. How does David have a son that, that now he calls Lord? Do I call my son Lucas? My Lord, my God. There you are, Lucas, my God. Woo, deep. It's very deep. Where do we see two lords talking to each other, but they're the same God? Go to Deuteronomy, no, excuse me, Genesis 19. This was a common theme of the Bible. There would be two people by the name of Lord talking to each other, and yet the Jewish people only believed in one God. Now, when we talk about the Trinity, do not think I am breaking logic. I am not saying that three persons are one person at the same time. I am not saying that. There are three separate persons who are one being called God. The Father is called God. The Son is called God. The Holy Spirit is called God. But there's not three gods. There's three persons who are God. Now, you might think I'm saying there's three gods, but there's really one God. That's not what I'm saying either. There's one God who is three persons. Understand the difference between nature and personhood. The nature of what God is, is all-knowing, all-powerful, all of those things. And there are three separate persons who are equal from all eternity who share that nature. One of the best examples I can give you is of a family. My family is called the Wyrostic family. We are one family. We are not multiple families. We are one family living at 1186, Shawford Way. Now, in that family, there are multiple people who bear that name Wyrostic. Where does that example lose out on getting to the Trinity? Is we all don't share the same nature equally. God is different than us. He can share the nature of God between the Father, Son, and Spirit equally and still have the family name of God. The family name of the Trinity is God. There's one God family, and there are three people who are God in that family. There are not three gods, not three God families. There are three persons in the family of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Is everybody tracking with me? Now look at the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. In the Bible, early on, book of Genesis, this is early stuff. These men and, and, and people questioning him should know this. It says in verse 24, Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven. Whoa, what just happened there, guys? Kind of goes back to let us, plural, make man in our image, right? Let us. There's an us there. And then here we see that the Lord meets with Abraham, hangs out with them. Abraham intercedes with the Lord. I believe this is Jesus. The two angels go ahead of Sodom and Gomorrah. Judgment's about ready to come. Jesus goes there. He starts calling down the judgment. But there's another person he's talking to that's up there called Lord too that brings it down. Father, Son. 
by the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. Does everybody get that? Go to the, I said, does everybody get that? Yeah. Go to the end of the book of Matthew. We're reading the book of Matthew. Go to the end of his story. Matthew chapter 28, 19. He's not going to contradict himself. As we're going there, look at the baptism. Jesus is in the water. The Father is in heaven, and the Spirit is coming as a dove. They are three separate persons, but are they three gods? No, one God in three persons. Very simple. Go and baptize them in the name, singular. What is the name? God, Yahweh, Lord. Who has that name? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Does it say baptize them in the names, plural? How many names does God have? One, God, Lord, all-powerful. I mean, we can put other uh, quote-unquote names to that, but the name of God describes it all. And so the Old Testament name that was singular for the God of the Bible is Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. Father is Yahweh. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Are there three Yahwehs? No, one Yahweh, but they're all being called Yahweh in their personhood. Father is Yahweh, Son is Yahweh, Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Go back to the passage. He's blowing their minds, isn't he? He says, whose son is David according to you? Uh, excuse me, uh, whose son, uh, who's uh, Messiah here? I got, go back to the question. I even forgot what I'm asking now. Go up there. Okay. Whose son is he? Whose son is the Messiah? Why does that sound so weird right now? Who's the Messiah's daddy? Let's ask it that way. Let's turn it around so I can get untongue-tied for a second. Whose daddy, who's the Messiah's daddy? God. But they say, but he comes from David. Hold on. Is he coming from God or is he coming from David? Which one? Go to Philippians chapter 2. It gets quiet when you're learning, doesn't it? It's quiet, right? What if I told you Jesus has two natures? Let's look at Philippians chapter 2, start in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Okay, let's learn about the mind of Christ. Who being in very nature, what? So Jesus is in very nature, what? God. He is a part of the triune nature of the one God. Jesus was God before he ever took on flesh. He was there before the world was ever created. John 1, 1 says he is God. John 1, 2, verses 3, 4, and 5 says through him all things were created. Without him nothing has been made that, that is made. But now watch. He's in the very nature of God. He did not consider equality with God something to use to his own advantage. So he didn't come to earth as a superman like God, like zapping us every five seconds. Rather, he made himself what? Nothing. For you to go from a human to an ant is nothing in comparison to what he went from being God in nature to man. He said, I can't even compare it to anything. It's like I just became nothing. When I became like you, I became like nothing. Watch. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Uh-oh, we got nature God, nature human likeness. The God man right there. Hypostatic union, hypostasis, meaning nature and what a thing is, static, what you stick to, and the union of it. Jesus is God taking on flesh. Man is not becoming God like the gurus teach. You can become God, man. Just find the inner God inside yourself with Oprah Winfrey. Jesus was not a man becoming God. He was a God, our God, taking on flesh, taking on humanity. When he's talking to them, he's going, 
you recognize that the Messiah is going to come in the flesh, right? But where is he really from? Who's really his daddy? Can't be David. David calls him God. David calls him his Lord. Let's keep going on why he does this. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He does this to die for us. He takes on flesh to die. This is worse than you becoming an ant to die for ants. This is literally God becoming man. There is no comparison to this. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. He never had the name Jesus in eternity. He was always the word, the son. That's what he was known by. It wasn't until he took on flesh that he got a name like us, Jesus, Yahshua. His eternal name is the son of man. His eternal name is the son of God. His eternal name is the Logos, the wisdom of God. But yet he has a moment in history where he comes and takes on flesh. And he says, I'll let you now call me Jesus. Yahweh saves, in other words. That's what the word means. He says, so God exalts him, gives him a name above every name, that at the name of who? At the name of who? Say it like you're up. At the name of who? Thank you. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is what? He's Lord, he's God, he's Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. Go to John 1.18. Quickly, John 1.18. This is the nature of our God. The book of John takes us into a different category of space than the other uh, gospels do. The other gospels talk about how he's born and his virgin birth. John just starts us off from eternity. He's God and he came down to be with us. Look at what it says in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Hold on. In the Old Testament, they saw God all the time. We just heard about in Genesis before Sodom and Gomorrah was bombed that that Abraham was hanging out with God. Moses saw God at the burning bush. How has everybody seen God? But you say no one has ever seen God. And that's actually a quote from the Old Testament. The guy who saw God, Moses, wrote that down. It says no one can see him. But hold on. But the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So who's the God or the person of God we've never seen? The Father. Who's the one that we always see? The Son. Is the Son less God than the Father? No. He's equally God like the Father, but no one interacts with the Father except they go by the Son. And so when we go back to our passage, and he's saying, whose Son really is he? He's more than just David's son. David just explains how he took on flesh. He came from the line of David. But it doesn't explain his nature. Keep going to the bottom, please. Verse 46, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. That's my Jesus, amen? He got him. Got him. Band, would you come please in closing? I like it when Jesus gets them like that. So let's, let's just put it all in review. Some Sadducees come who just think life is just whatever you make it. After you die, that's it. And they try to trick Jesus with something about polygamy. But Jesus explains why the Old Testament did that. And then he puts it back on them and says, you guys don't know the power of God. You don't know the scriptures. Let us learn from that to know the power of God and know the scriptures. God will never leave us nor forsake us, and death can't even separate us from him. Then the Pharisees, they try to trick him. They try to get him to kind of 
pick a commandment and say it's the best and turn the Old Testament against itself, excuse me, and try to make Jesus put down other commands. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. I'm going to go to the axiom. I'm going to go to the foundation. The reason why we don't murder is because there's a God. The reason why we don't lie is because there's a God. The reason why we don't uh, uh, disobey our parents is because there's a God. And the first thing we can ever give him that's worth anything to him is love. And in that same vein, we treat others the way we want to be treated because we didn't make the person we're being mad at in traffic. And if we didn't make them, we can't break them. Amen. He gives us time for war, but most of the time we're not in war. Let's be honest, right? War's about justice. And then lastly, they're kind of coming around and it doesn't say they get interrupted, but I can almost see like, Jesus, we got another question. And right while they're about ready to ask one, Jesus is like, hey, hey, I got a question for you. You know, the Messiah, whose son is he? Who's his daddy? Oh, David, David, David. Oh, really? Why is it David says in Psalm 110.1, the Lord, my father, said to my other Lord, the Lord Jesus, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. How is it that David calls his own son Lord? Well, the reason is, is because David was created by the Lord Jesus. David met Jesus in the temple at different times. David had an understanding that the Messiah he was predicting was also his God, but he was separate from the Father God that he had relationship with. And then the unique thing about David is he also understood the Holy Spirit. He said, where can I go from your spirit? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the bottom of the earth, you're there. The Old Testament saints had a glimpse of the Trinity. It wasn't until Jesus came that he showed us the Trinity. He showed us who God was and is. And now we're supposed to look at who Jesus is and understand the Father and the Spirit. And so today, the question is, is Jesus the Lord, the God of your life? Is Jesus the way you go to the Father and experience the rebirth of the Spirit, the transformation of the Spirit? Is Jesus your central person that you're making life all about today? And what's amazing about the Father and the Spirit is they're there to glorify and uplift Jesus. That's what it just said in Philippians, that the Father loved to give him a name that's above every other name. The name of Jesus is even greater than the name of the Father for us to be saved. I don't have to say the Father is Lord to be saved according to Romans 10. I have to say Jesus is Lord. So the Father willingly gave him the name of the triune God that we would all be saved by. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, comes to glorify me. He doesn't come to talk on his own behalf. He comes to talk about what me and my Father are talking about. He'll make known to you. And so the The most important thing we can gather from today is the Lordship of Jesus. What an honor it is to live for him and to serve him and to expect him to come back one day to resurrect us so that we can rule and reign with him. But more importantly than that, love him and be with him for eternity. Amen. Let's stand up and give it up for Jesus today. You're our Lord. We love you, Jesus. Somebody say, Jesus is Lord. Come on, say it again.